Well, if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, um, and they might flop open to Ezekiel, right? Um, we're done. We're done with these. I mean, we're not done. How are we ever done? Like, that's a wonderful book. Um, but we are turning to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is in the New Testament. Um, I always remember uh, because it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or um, go eat popcorn. I, anybody, anybody? Okay, there we go. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's right. Go eat popcorn. So yeah, I, I mean, there's still times, especially when you get in the minor prophets, I'm still looking in the table of contents in my Bible. So I, and I have a PhD, so don't worry about, uh, about that. Um, anyway, once you find Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, let's stand in honor of God and His Word. We will be reading a very lengthy passage today. Ephesians 1, 1, and 2. Okay, all right. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. And we have a special video greeting from the city of Ephesus. So let's see that one. But we've got to hear it too. A series on the book of Ephesians. And this is a great place to just say down here is the... Oh! Hey Taft Avenue family. Uh, this next week we're going to be starting a series on the book of Ephesians. And... This is a great place to just say down here is the library in Ephesus. Beyond the library would have been the harbor in Ephesus. This would have been the largest city of the ancient world in the area in Asia, in Asia Minor, in Turkey, where Paul was in the first century. And so Paul comes here, John comes here, but as we look at the book of Ephesians, this is the ground where all of that happens. And so we're looking forward to starting this up and having a nice run in this book Looking forward to seeing you all on Sunday. And here I am seeing you all on Sunday. So um, if I looked cold, if I looked cold, it was because I was cold. It was about 30 degrees. We were just there about three weeks ago. Uh, it was about 30 degrees. It warmed up to um, about 39 degrees that day. So um, anyway, even though it was sunny, and we will have, um, with the, the trip that, that I recently took, and I took in October, I went with a number of pastors this last time to lead that trip. But um, as we go through the book, there will be various things that we'll kind of visit and um, some videos that we'll look at as, as we, we look at this, uh, um, this book, this great book, and the region that it occurs from. So, okay. So we talked about self-report. So here's my first self-report. We had a very lengthy passage, right? Very long passage, okay? Now, okay, I, here's my self-report. And my shame, my shame will be before you all, okay? Um, I have made fun of pastors who preach the sermon that I'm going to preach today, all right? The, the, the dear Eric from Anne, right? Like, the, this, is the begin, this is just a basic hello, okay? It's, it's, a very, it's a greeting, like, for example, like, I think it would, be, it would be interesting if, like, I wrote a letter to my brother Brian, and it got buried in the sand, and 100 years or 200 years later, somebody dug it up, and they said, and it began... Dear Brian, and somebody was like, well, it's dear to them. 
Like he's dear, like and it's a, his name is Brian, and Brian means strength. And like, you know, how weird would it be? It's like I'm just writing a letter to my brother, right? That we would go into such depth about the beginning of a letter. Or, or like imagine if you like sent a memo, like one of your emails got printed out and got, set, and got, got, got buried in the sand, and it was something like this, like to the director of human resources from, insert name, chief operating officer, right? And you would, like, he's a director. He directs things. And he's over humans. Humans, humans are these, you know, like, you would, like, so digging deep into, like, the beginning of the book that's basically saying, hey, this is Paul, and I'm writing to my friends, there's a little bit of, like, hey, maybe we're going a little bit too in-depth on a greeting. So I will confess, I've made a little bit of fun of people who, like, well, grace and peace. We'll talk about grace and peace in just a second because <laughs> I'm going to be guilty of my, of my very sins. But at the same time, there are some things that we can learn about letters. And as we begin our series in, in Ephesians, there are some things that we can learn. There are some times that greetings and endings are significant. Like, for example, okay, here's one example. Let's say a young woman repeatedly writes letters to her boyfriend, beginning each letter, my dearest Eric, and then ending them, all my love, Anne. Maybe she writes it even in that voice, right? I don't know how she, you can interpret however you want. Now, let's say Eric one day receives a letter, and at the beginning, instead of my dearest Eric, it simply begins, dear Eric. And at the very end, it doesn't end with all my love, Anne, it begins, or it ends, Yours truly, Anne. What might that mean? It, it, mean, it might mean that Eric's in trouble, right? Okay, and, but that's an example of where we can get some meaning out of basic conventions of letter writing in our day or in the ancient world. When we have these well-worn grooves that we expect at the beginning and end of letters, that sometimes when an author deviates from some of those well-worn grooves, that we can learn something about what the author is trying to do. And in this case, we have a couple of examples of where the Apostle Paul might deviate from a well-worn groove of the way letters might have been written in the ancient world and at, at a point that he might be making. At the same time, we might simply have, hey, everybody in Ephesus. Okay, so, uh, so all that to say, I don't want to go too far in the weeds, and I want to be honest about what we can and can't find, not only in the beginning of this letter, but in this letter as it is. It's a wonderful letter. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a great place where we can land and where we can do some work in our church on ourselves and hear what God is doing among us. So, but there are some things that we can pay attention to. So, what I want to do is I want to kind of walk through a little bit of this. I want to use this Sunday as a bit of an introduction to the book. And what we're, what we're going to be looking at and looking for as we work through the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so Paul is identified as the author. And as with everything, when you do New Testament studies, there are some who would argue that Paul did not write this, that one of his disciples later on wrote it. Now, if you're interested, I'm not going to go into the weeds on all that. We're going to say that Paul wrote it. Okay, because I think there's good reason to think that Paul wrote this book, 
Um, but as someone who has taught a New Testament introduction and does New Testament studies, uh, you know, I just want to give a nod that there are some people who would say, hey, maybe Paul didn't write this, and still it doesn't change the canonicity. It's still a canonical book. It's still scripture. But at the same time, I think there's good reasons for that. Rather than going into all that here, what I'm going to do is if, if there at any point in the book of Ephesians where I feel like on a Sunday morning we could get kind of lost in the weeds, what I'll do is I'll record a little podcast for the week, Okay. So one of the things that, um, rather than getting too lost in the weeds on a lot of these things, like authorship, audience, things like that, I'm going to record a short little podcast. If you're interested, okay, if you want to geek out with me a little bit, find the po- we'll put the podcast up and you can, you can follow along and get lost with the rest of us. But for Sunday morning, I just want to, I want to hit kind of the high point. So Paul, Paul describes himself as, uh, as an apostle. He calls himself an apostle. An apostle, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you might know that the word apostle, it comes from the Greek word apostello, which is the verb to send. And so if you are an apostle, if you're, an, if you're someone who has been apostelloed, you are one who has been sent. You have been sent as an emissary of someone, as a messenger of someone. Someone has sent you out. And the apostles, Paul calls himself an apostle, and as we ask, well, who sends Paul? Who is, who is he an emissary of? Who is he a messenger of? And in the rest of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Messiah Jesus. Your translation probably says Christ Jesus, Christos, Christos is simply the word in Greek for anointed one. It is the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Mashiach, which means anointed one. Now, what does anointed one mean? Who gets gets anointed? Okay, let's try this again. All right. Who gets anointed? Kings get anointed. Nobody else gets anointed. Kings get anointed. And so when Paul is writing about Christos, Messiah, you have to hear this. He, he is being sent out by a king. Now, we're going to get to how even that, even that introduction is going to raise some eyebrows in the Roman world. Because who's king? Caesar's king, and he's got a huge army who will beat you down if you disagree with him. And so Paul is saying, I have been sent out by a king, and his name is not Tiberius, his name is not Nero, his name is not, his name is Jesus, and he's Messiah. He's not a Caesar, he's Messiah. He is sent out by Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus, King Jesus. He's an emissary, and he has been sent out not only by Jesus, but by the will of God. And here's one thing as we get into this book of Ephesians, one of the main themes that we're going to see in the book of Ephesians is that God has a plan. God has a plan. He has a will. He has a plan. He has thought things through. He has done things from the foundations of the earth And he has made his will known, and he continues to make his will known. And if you are a king, 
If you are a king, like, like Jesus says, when we pray, we say, we say, your will be done, you know, that your kingdom come, your will be done on heaven as it is on earth, that if there is a will to be done, it is the will of the king, your kingdom come. And so for Paul, Paul sees himself as an emissary, as someone that has been sent out by the king according to the wise counsel, the foreknowledge, the intention of God. God has made decisions. He has purposes. He has plans. He executes them by His counsel, by His will, according to His desires and according to His own good pleasure. Even if it is a little bit at odds with our own sensibilities, God has made a plan and God is about executing that plan. Now, if you've been around for our series in the book of Acts, you've been introduced to the Apostle Paul, okay? Um, and if, you're, if you've been around the church or the Bible for any amount of time, you probably have heard about Paul. If you haven't been around the church for um, any amount of time or, or you're new to this whole Christianity thing, I, let me just say, um, um, we went through the book of Acts and we did a, a good introduction to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. If you want to read about the Apostle Paul, you could go to Acts chapter 9. Um, you could also go to the sermon that's on October 18th, 2020 called The Conversion of Saul Paul, and that would be a good place to, uh, you can go on our website and find it there. That's a good place to get introduced to the man who wrote this book, okay? So, that would be, that would be something of an introduction on this. So, that is who is writing this book. It's Paul. So, on the memo line, from Paul, and then those are his credentials. That's how he sees himself as an apostle sent by a king according to the plan of what God has planned long, long ago before the foundations of the world, all right? So, that's Paul, okay? It also says in 1.1, says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. All right, here's our introduction to Ephesus. Let's see um, where we're, what we're talking about here on the board. Um, we got to have a map. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm here, um, and so here's our map. It might be a little bit hard to see, uh, let's see if we can, here we go. Okay, so, um, so this is Turkey, modern Turkey, okay? Down here is Israel, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, not to scale, well, this is to scale, actually. Um, this, is, this is a real map. Um, so <laughs> All right, everybody, we're going to make it through. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay, so this is modern Turkey. Um, this is the place, so over here is Greece, over here is um, Italy, Rome would be up here. Athens would be right about there. Corinth is right about there. Philippi up there. Thessaloniki up here. Thessalonica. Um, anyway, this is the re so. And here is Ephesus right here, Western uh, uh, Western Turkey. So southwestern Turkey. This would have been called the province of Asia back in the Roman world. Okay, the first century Roman world. This is Asia. Okay, Paul's missionary journeys begin over here in um, uh, Antioch on the Orontes, or Syrian Antioch. Uh, the first missionary journey goes down here to Cyprus, and then up here to um, Italia, and then up into the Galatian region. Second missionary journey kind of works its way up, bypassing this region up here to Troas, and then across to Philippi. At the end of the second missionary journey, Paul will come, excuse me, will travel from Athens 
to Ephesus, where he spends a couple weeks in Ephesus, down to Jerusalem, and then on the third missionary journey, he sets out and he goes directly, makes a beeline for Ephesus. And it's there that we hear a little bit from the book of Acts, where it says in Acts 19.9, well, he spends, he's three months, he's able to stay in the synagogue and preach, Jesus is the Messiah. So he's able to do that for, for 12 weeks in the city of Ephesus. Most places he goes, he stays for a week, maybe two, maybe three, and then you can only preach Jesus as the Messiah so long in a synagogue before people are like, hey, wait a minute, I, you know, like you're talking about Jesus like he's God, and we, there's only one God, hero Israel, the Lord is one, like how are we doing this? And this idea that, so eventually Paul gets kicked out of synagogues, he stays in this synagogue for like three months teaching this. And eventually, after he gets kicked out, in 19.9, Acts 19.9, it says, When some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus Hall was a place in Ephesus. They've not dug it up yet. They've also not found the, um, found, uh, the, the, the synagogue. Only about 10% of the city of Ephesus has actually been excavated. It was a huge, huge city, and only about 10% actually has been excavated. So they're doing more excavations, and, um, which is great. So um, anyway, all that to say, um, what am I trying to say? Verse 10 of, of Acts 19.10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So remember what we said about, excuse me, All right? There it is. Just shake it. That's, that's, the, that's my technical advice for anything that goes wrong electronically. Okay? So just shake it. Um, there we go. So he spends, if we can, let's zoom in uh, to the next slide, Terry. Um, so he lands in Ephesus here, and then all the region of Asia hears the word of the Lord. Now these seven churches, these seven cities, are made more famous by the book of Revelation, right? The book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 has the seven churches of Revelation. This, this is the region of Asia. This is the area that for the three years that Paul is present in the city of Ephesus, this is the region that hears the word of the Lord. Now, Paul goes, he's there in the 60s, in the 50s and the 60s, actually more in the 50s, the Apostle John will eventually make it up there in the 70s and 80s of the first century. So there's a couple of waves of Christian influence that come through. After the, 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 um, the, uh, the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem, there's a, mass, there's a massive migration of Jews north into this region, into actually this region. So there's a number of things, for example, the largest Jewish synagogue that has been found in the ancient world is in the city of Sardis. So this has a large Jewish population, and if you go there today, you can walk walk right in. It's been excavated. It's a wonderful site that you can go to. We'll see a little uh, video eventually as we go there. So um, all the residents of Asia is talking about these, these seven cities and the regions around them. And so as we walk through this, as we walk through this, each city we're going to note, so when it talks about in the book of Ephesians, okay, 
One of the things is that your Bible reads, your Bible will read to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay. We have, we've discovered a lot of manuscript evidence along the way, and we'll talk about this in the podcast, but um, in some of the earliest manuscripts we have, the words in Ephesus are not there. So, okay, you're like, what you talking about? Okay, hang on, hang on. Some of the earliest manuscripts that we have, some of the earliest and most reliable ones, do not have the word in Ephesus. It would literally read, it would simply read, that to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason why this is called Ephesians is eventually we realize that probably the earliest manuscripts that we find of this are in the city of Ephesus. And this is probably something that is written to the region of the Ephesians, and the tradition has it, and those who would have known best would have attributed this to the region of Ephesus. And there's really great reasons to believe, to, to think that it is from this Ephesian region, because for one reason, because of its affinity with Colossians. We'll talk about that as we move on. But all this to say, later on, it becomes standard to refer to this as the epistle to the Ephesians, and that in Ephesus becomes standard in the books. Now, that's what we call textual criticism, and again, I'll, put, I'll talk about it in the podcast if you'd like to. I've already gone a little far off the rabbit trail here, and so hang with me. So, all this to say, when you're talking about Ephesians, okay, there's a few things about the letter that stand out among all the other letters, among all the other letters that Paul writes. In the other letters that Paul writes, he addresses a lot of people that he knows, even if he's never been to a city. Like in Colossians, he's like, well, tell Nympha, who has a church in Laodicea, that I greet her and, and greet Archippus and greet uh, Tychicus and, and greet Epaphras, and, and he mentions all these people. In the book of Romans, at the end, in Romans chapter 16, he just lists like 25 people. In Ephesians... He doesn't mention anyone except at the very end, this man, Tychicus, who is also mentioned as the carrier of the letters Colossians and Philemon. Only one person is mentioned. Now, what that leads most scholars to believe is that Paul intends this letter not simply for the city of Ephesus, but for the region of Ephesus. Ephesus would have been the third largest city in the ancient world behind Rome and behind Syrian Antioch. Third largest. It was the largest port on the coast of, of what we would call Turkey today. It's actually no longer a port because the port has actually silted up. Okay? But in the ancient world, this was the largest city of the region, the third largest city in the, in the Roman world, and all of these cities, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, these were all major cities in that region that were in many ways kind of dwarfed by the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the big man on campus. And there was actually, within this region, there was a lot of competition between cities because the city of Sardis... In, the ancient, in, in ancient times, probably in, in more in the, Greek, in the Greek times, Sardis was the biggest city because it liked to do trade with the Persians, and the Persians were in the east. The Persians were in the east. There's actually an ancient road that goes from Sardis, and it just heads east. It's called the King's Road, and Sardis was the biggest city. 
But eventually, when the Romans take control, Pergamum up in the north, they make a va- they kind of vie for the biggest city. And if you go to Pergamum, Pergamum is this huge city on a hill. It's got a huge uh, amphitheater that's cut into the side of this cliff. It's a beautiful city, and it ta- it's power, man. And when the Romans take Pergamum, they, build, they scrape the top of the hill of whatever temple's up there, and they build a temple to themselves. Because that's what you do when you're a Roman. You just flex it out all the time. You are constantly in the gym, and you are flexing every possibility. That's what it means to be Roman. And so Pergamum makes a, makes a play to be the biggest city in the region, but eventually it's Ephesus. Ephesus becomes the place. It's the largest port, especially if you're coming from Rome and you're shipping things in. And like if it's the Persians, the Persians come in from the east, but the Romans come in by sea. And so the Romans say Ephesus is the city, not to mention Ephesus had in it one of the ancient, the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple of Artemis. It was huge. It was huge. The pillars would have been over 50 feet tall. And it would have been, if you think about the Parthenon, the Parthenon, how you ever see the pictures of the Parthenon? It's four of those. It would have been huge, massive. And as you came in the port, the first thing you would have seen was this massive temple to Artemis. And it was just this huge city. But each city had its kind of its own personality. It's kind of like if you think about Southern California. Think about Southern California on this. Like if if Pergamum, let's say Pergamum is like Long Beach up in the north. And then Ephesus would be like Newport Beach. That's about about how big this area is, okay? And then if you go out to like, uh, you go out to like Palm Springs, that's Laodicea. That's about the scale of what we're talking about. And like Philadelphia would be like San Bernardino. And if you come in, Sardis would be maybe about Pasadena, Okay, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at, uh, generally speaking, about the scope of this. And so you might think with this, even though travel, even though that is a pretty good amount of space between, there would be travel between these cities on a daily basis. Every day there would be people coming, arriving into the city, and leaving for another city. Merchants, family members people with correspondences, people with business contracts. These would have been interconnected, an interconnected network of churches. Uh, Not just churches, but cities. And when the gospel comes in to a place like Ephesus, it's not hard to imagine in Acts chapter 19 when it says that all of Asia hears the gospel because of what Paul is doing, because of the interconnectedness of these cities. So that's a little bit, when we're talking about the book of Ephesians, we're actually talking about this region, the seven churches. And so as we look at these seven churches and these seven cities, there are various things about this. So Smyrna is also a port. Pergamum is the center of Roman power. Pergamum also has, up in the, up here, Pergamum also has a, at the time, a world-renowned healing center. 
at the temple of Asclepius. If you were sick, you might travel from all over just to go there, and that you would, you would sleep in the temple overnight. It was a, they called it the incubation chamber, and then um, you would, we would hope for a vision from the god Asclepius telling you what your remedy was, and so it was kind of, it was kind of a, but if you were also interested, so it was a little bit of charlatanism going on, like the, the priests would, they walk around, and as people were sleeping in the temple, they'd be like, you gotta walk, you gotta walk a mile in the rain. <laughs> like, and they're, they're like, I heard this last night. Somebody told me I had to walk a mile in the rain and that's gonna cure me. So there was some charlatanism, but if you were actually a doctor and you were interested in healing people and doing actual medicine, you would find yourself maybe in a place like that asking questions and trying to figure things out. This might have been a place where like Luke would have been very familiar. Even though he was not worshiping Asclepius, if you were serious about healing people, you would go to the temple of Asclepius. That was in Pergamum. As you work your way around, Tyatira up here was known for its trade guilds and for its, its, uh, its, the garments, its textile industry. Um, Sardis was known as an impenetrable fortress, large, and again, this large Jewish population. Down in Laodicea, Laodicea, um, you also had two other cities that were nearby. Hierapolis has hot springs in it. Um, and people would go there for healing. It also had a temple to, um, with hot springs. Um, all right, so this is kind of interesting. Um, they also had a temple to Hades, the, the god of death. And in the temple of Hades um, was built over this like fissure um, because it's on a, on a fault line. And um, it would, uh, like um, gases would come up out of this. And so people would go in to inhale the gases to have a visionary experience. But oftentimes when they would inhale the gases, they would just die. Um, and so... <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird worship center. Um, we, <laughs> we're building that outside if anybody wants a piece of that. Um, anyway, but all that to say, all of these cities had, and, that, and only about 10 miles away from Laodicea is the city of Colossae. So Colossians, Laodicea, those are, those are connected. But this is the region, and so there's a lot of things as we look at this book we're going to be looking at the background of what Paul is saying by looking at this region, these seven churches. Okay? So as we do this, we're, we're interested in the world in which this is taking place, but what, is the, what does it add to the meaning of what Paul is trying to say? All right. Very networked. Um, now, what that means is that if this is written to this region, then this book of Ephesians is what we would call an encyclical or a circular letter, a letter that is intended to circulate. Really quickly, turn just a couple books over to, this, to the book of Colossians. Go, eat, pop, corn. So go to the right, skip Philippians, go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. And I want to read a little bit about how we might imagine the book of Ephesians, traveling. So start in verse 15. This is to Colossians, which is about 10 miles away from Laodicea, Laodicea. Verse 15. Give my greetings, so this is written to the city of Colossae. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter, Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, we don't have, we don't have an epistle 
to the Laodiceans. We don't have that. What is probably like, what's likely happening here is when Paul writes Colossians, so this is the theory. This is the theory that I'm working off of. Paul is in Rome when he writes this. And this, this runaway slave Onesimus from the city of Colossae, he somehow gets connected with Paul. But Onesimus can't stay with Paul. He's got to go back to his hometown. And so Paul's going to send him back to his hometown with this guy Tychicus. Okay? Are you guys keeping score at home? So he's hanging out with these names. So Onesimus and Tychicus, they sit out on a journey. But before they do, Paul says, if, as long as you're going there, I know, people in, if you, I know people in that area, and there's issues in the city of Colossae that we've got to deal with. So let me write a letter to the city of Colossae where you're going, as well as a letter to your master Onesimus Philemon. And while you're at it, when you get to Ephesus, I want you to drop this other letter off, and it's going to make its way around eventually to where you are at. So when Tychicus and Onesimus arrive, they land in Ephesus, they give the letter to the Ephesians, to the Ephesian church, with the intention that it's going to circulate. In the same, in the same order that the cities are listed in the book of Revelation. Ephesians, or Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's the, that's the order, probably because that formed a trade route, a circular trade route. And then you would come up the Meander River Valley back to Ephesus. And so this circular letter, so these guys land in Ephesus, they drop off what we know as the letter to the Ephesians, they travel to Laodicea and then to Colossae, where they deliver Colossians and the book of Philemon. These three books have a relationship, and they are, I, I think that we should study them together, and we will, we'll use Colossians to help us understand Ephesians. We'll also use the letter to Philemon to help us understand some of the more tricky passages, particularly about slavery, in the book of Ephesians. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these books and help that use them to help us to interpret that. And so when we think about the letter to the Ephesians, I want us to be thinking about that it is to this region, and it comes with these other books that have a relationship to it, all right? So again, are there any questions? We'll put, like, we'll put it on the podcast. I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot, but that's the way, as I look at the book, that's the way I come at the book. And there's certainly places for disagreement and places for conversation, but that's where we're going to be going with this particular letter, that this is a letter to circulate. All right, and as this goes out, um, this, is a, this goes into a world where, um, if you get today, you could see this is a world where um, it's Greek art, but Roman politics, Roman might. This is a world of travel and interconnectedness, a world of business interests, merchants, and guilds. This is also a region where there's the folk religion and the folk worship of local deities, magic, folk religion. Paul encounters magicians and Jewish exorcists in the city of Ephesus. It's an exotic religious location. And the Jesus movement comes through and prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have to look at this book in light of how are these 
people who Paul calls saints, holy ones, set apart ones. The word saint is the word holy. It's the word, it's the idea of being set apart, that if you had things for God, you would take common things and you would take things out of the common and you'd put it here and you'd make it holy, set apart, devoted for the Lord. And in the Jewish world, the way you made things holy is you gathered them into the temple. You gathered them and you you took them out of common life and you gathered them in. But what Paul seems to think that God is doing is he's taking his people, his saints, his holy ones, his things that are set apart, his people that are set apart, and he's not gathering them, he's spreading them in the world. Because God seems to be, and this might be part of the mystery that he's talking about, that God seems to be in the business about making things that are common, ordinary, defiled, making those things holy. Making them for him. What once was common, God would set apart. And he notes, Paul notes, that the people of this region, the Ephesians, who are faithful who have faith in Jesus, they are being called set apart for God. Then he says, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. What does he mean? All right. The greeting, the typical greeting in in, in Greek is kairain. And it means hello. Okay? And so Paul says charis, and he kind of has a little bit of a theological twist on the, on the greeting, but he says hello. Now, how do you say hello if you're Jewish? You say shalom. And what does the word shalom mean? It means peace, which is the word irene in Greek. And so probably what Paul is doing by saying grace and peace is kairene to all you Greeks and shalom to all you Jews. There's... There's nothing super theological here. He's simply saying, hello, Greeks, hello, Jews. Okay, that, so I, that's my self-report. We can't go any deeper than that. That's what it means. That's what he's doing here. Grace and peace, hello. And, and that's gonna be a major theme in the book, isn't it? That God has made one new humanity out of two. The dividing wall has been brought down. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. Slave or free. Male or female, there's the dividing lines have been brought down. And he's going to make that point in the book. All right. One last thing. Why are we doing Ephesians? I heard somebody, I was talking to someone uh, like after we were finishing Ezekiel, and they were saying, uh, What are we doing next? I'm like, Ephesians. They're like, That's a little bit of a gear shift, isn't it? <laughs> like, why, why are we doing Ephesians? And this is a little bit behind. The, uh, behind the, the curtain here, okay? So when I came to, to Taft Avenue three years ago, one of the things we did was we established some guiding values. And there are four guiding values that we have been using, at least I and the elders, and when we make decisions, things that are guiding our values. And so the first one of that, does anybody remember what these are? Uh, the first one is, um, anyone? All right, we got, we got to put some banners up somewhere. Thank you for the laughs. Um, anticipating that God will move. We're anticipating that God will move. Everything that we do, every dollar that we spend, everything we do, we do because we anticipate that God wants to do something. 
We're not sitting on a 401k for the church. We're not sitting on this. Obviously, we have a good functional uh, operational reserve. But look, we're not sitting on this. God wants to do something. And we're anticipating that he wants to do something. And we're also removing distractions, calling attention to God. That's the second thing. We're removing distractions, calling attention to God. I thought Ezekiel was a great book for those two things. God is on the move. I mean, literally, the first chapter of Ezekiel, God is on the move. Like, he's on a chariot moving from Jerusalem to Babylon in this huge flaming ball of, of thunder and lightning. Like, it's awesome. God is on the move. And he, 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 he inscripts Ezekiel into that, okay? But anticipating God will move and removing distractions, calling attention to God. But the last two, I feel like Ephesians is something that we want, I want to land on with Ephesians, and that's this. The third value is the overwhelming value of each person. Overwhelming value of each person. That if we, went, if we went into Starbucks or CVS and someone was behind the counter, and if we actually sat down and just thought about it, we would be like, that person is created in the image of God. God has thought about that person from the foundations of the world. If I were to see what that person was capable of with the blessing of God and the beauty of their humanity, I would fall down in amazement. I would be overwhelmed with what God is doing. And the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians tries its hardest to capture that idea. That we are in Christ, in the heavenly realms. That God has thought a great deal about this. That he's planned it before the foundation of the world. He had his people in mind. He had you in mind. He's choosing. He's adopting. He's redeeming. He's forgiving. He's giving us an inheritance because he sees the overwhelming value of you. And I want this book, I just want this book to sink deep into our hearts. There's so much in this book about identity that we are not in. He says to the saints in Ephesus, what else are you in? You're in Christ. Your identity is not as an Ephesian. Your identity isn't as a Californian. Your identity isn't as, what do we call people from orange? Orangeites? Orange sickles? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like what, you're, but that's not your identity. Your identity is that you are a child of God redeemed by Jesus, adopted into a family, given an inheritance. That's who you are. Don't forget that. Don't ever forget that. You have value that if people actually saw, see, we live in a world where it's like, where sometimes we, we forget like there's a veil over our value. And we look around in our world and by the, the television screens and the cameras and everything, that there's this veil over the value of people. And the book of Ephesians wants to say, we want to take that veil and unveil it and we want to see the overwhelming value of each person because God has thought a long time about you. God knows you. God sees you. God loves you. He's thought a long time about you, and he wants to see you thrive. He wants to see you faithful. He wants to see you with him. 
He wants to see you in Christ. As a matter of fact, because of your faith in Christ, he, whenever he sees you, he sees you in Christ. He actually sees you as you actually are. That's another thing about this book. The book of Ephesians is going to want to pull back the veil between what we might call the physical world and the spiritual world. And to say that there are things going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world that we need to be aware of. Our identity is there, but our opponents are also there. And we need to take a look and account for that well. Anticipating God will move, removing distractions, calling attention to God. That third thing, the overwhelming value of each person. And then the last thing is this, a congregation of growing people, a congregation of growing people. And as we finish this up, Romans, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, he talks, about, um, he talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And one of the big questions for me, I'm really fascinated about the idea about how do people change? How do people change? Because sometimes I want people to change, sometimes I don't want people to change, sometimes I don't want to change, but there are other times where I do want to change and I'm asking the question, how do I change? How how does a human being change? Does a leper ever change its spots, right? How do we change? And what, what it seems like God thinks is that our change comes from the inside out. Be transformed, metamorphose, be transformed, physical transformation, transformed in your behavior by what? By the renewing of your mind. As you think, there you will go. And the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is actually built for this formula. The first three chapters, in many ways, is about rich theological truth, the renewing of the mind, things that you want to build deep into who you are, your identity, what is God doing? He sealed us with His Holy Spirit, like those things, understanding those things, and and the mind. But the second half of Ephesians is about how that works out in our lives, how that works out in our marriages, how that works out in our businesses, how that works out in our behavior how that works out in, in, our, in our ethical lives, and how that works out morally in us, all the external things. And so the book of Ephesians is actually, it feels like a bit of, a, of an expansion on Romans 12 too, transformed at the end by the renewing of your mind at the first, at the first three chapters. And so as we think about a, a congregation of growing people, one of the things as we think about change and transformation Oftentimes, we, aren't, we don't experience change until we come to a point of pain or a point of crisis. You might have experienced in this life. You don't necessarily want, if you don't want to change, you won't change. And sometimes when you don't want to change, your circumstances are making you change. You have a crisis of circumstance or you have a crisis of conscience, but that's how change comes. And so one of the things that Ephesians is going to do is as it does talk about the renewing of the mind, it is going to confront It's going to confront false ideas about who you are. It's going to confront ideas about what you think the real struggle is against. And it's going to remind us, hey, don't be distracted by a false struggle. Focus on the real struggle. And there are going to be times where the book of, well, every, look, every chapter in Ephesians, is a, there's going to be a confrontation. And as we are confronted, we are confronted with the idea that God wants to make us into something that we are not yet already. 
We are certainly in Christ, but we are also in the process of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our identity is secure, but God wants to move us and sanctify us into something that we are not yet already. We've not arrived. None of us have. And so the book of Ephesians in some way is going to confront us and move us into change. And what I want us to do is I want us to embrace this idea, the overwhelming value of each person, not only you, but I want you to look out and I want you to see the overwhelming value of every person here. I want you to look out into our city and see the overwhelming value of every person in our city. And then I want us to understand God has us on a journey, a congregation of growing people. And so that's why, that's why Ephesians is a place where I, I, I want to land and I want to take seriously And I want to ask the question about this. It's going to address the issues of power. Who is in charge in this world? It's going to address issues of the plan. What has God thought from the beginning of all things to now? And about identity, he wants to remind you of who you are in Christ. So let's pray together. I'm going to call the worship team to come on up and um, let's just pray. We're going to be on a journey. And so um, today... I want us to just, as we, as we bow, let's just bow our heads, and if you would, just put your hands out. Let's just receive. Let's ask God that if we're going to receive something, that he would, he would offer it. So just put your hands out physically, if you can, and let's just, let's just address God and pray. Father, we, we first of all are thankful for this book, for this letter, and for what you're doing in this world. Father, we come here today because um, we do anticipate that you are moving. And we come here to worship you. And we anticipate that you have something to say to us whenever we open your word. And so, Father, would you be gracious and faithful to offer what that is to each of us today? We've endeavored to remove every distraction making way for you to speak. And maybe today it's, whether that's that you have made us holy, you've set us apart, or whether you want to remind us about who we are in you, or just remind us that we've been on your mind, or remind us that you have a plan Maybe there's comfort that needs to be received. Father, whatever that thing is, I pray for each of your children here that you would just speak that to them even now with their hands open, expectant that you would speak to them. Impress on their hearts what that is. And Father, we come to you even at the beginning of this book to say we're so grateful for that you have chosen to reveal who you are to us. And we ask, Father, that as we are faithful to study your word, that you would continue to do that through this series in the book of Ephesians. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.